Welcome to Amona Moment, a podcast hosted by the Museum of Northwest Art in LaConnor, Washington. The Museum of Northwest Art connects people with the art, diverse cultures, and environments of the Northwest. It also enriches lives in our diverse community by fostering essential conversations and encouraging creativity through exhibitions and educational activities that explore the art of the Northwest. On January 5th, Mona hosted an artist and scientist panel as the wrap-up of the 2018-19 Surge exhibition. This moderated panel featured scientists and artist teams who contributed to the well-received and exciting Surge exhibition. We hope you enjoy this Mona moment. Hello, everybody. I just wanted to let you know we're about ready to get started. If you could take your seats, please. It's really great to see everybody here, needless to say. You know, um, I just, I'm the director of the museum. My name is Joanna Sykes. And I just had to say, you know, thank you to the artists and the scientists on behalf of the museum staff and the board of trustees. Um, this has been a fantastic experience for us. I had the pleasure of coming to the museum after this project has already been developed, but to be here as it opened and to see the response from the community and the amazing cross-pollination of the artists and the scientists to really create something amazing. I mean, obviously the scientists have something to say and um, it's a discussion for all of us to participate in. But when the artist can also take that discussion and turn it into something so visually interesting and so visually stimulating, is really a test to not only of their talent, but the collaboration between the two. That um, what the scientists wanted to say was imparted to the artist into a way in which they could actually create all this amazing work. Um, while the exhibition has been up, we have seen vast numbers of people coming. I can't thank you enough for coming today. This should be a very, very interesting conversation, as the other panels have too. Um, but then also, you know, throughout this uh, run of the exhibition, you know, we were asked several times if the museum would consider something again working with Surge, and you know, the answer, of course, is going to be yes. Um, this one took two years to put together, and we'd probably be looking at the same kind of time frame because it really benefited both the collaboration from the scientists and from the artists. Um, we were also asked if the show was going to travel. You know, of course, we wish this show would travel. But uh, that's the other thing about the time frame. To put a traveling show together takes about two or three years. So anyway, we'll all, when this is closed, I'll put our hats back on and start looking about the future and what the next project can be and what it would be like. So that's sort of the end of my part, um, except to let you know that after um, this is after the talk is done. There is a happy hour reception. It's almost across the street at Sips. We can all tell you how to get there. You can walk there. And um, they're going to provide appetizers, and then we have a cash bar. And of course, hopefully the panelists and uh, all of the other participants <coughs> will consider coming too, but you are all welcome to attend. So now I'll turn it over to your two moderators, and we can have an interesting afternoon. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Um, I'm Rachel Lodge. I'm one of the artists in the exhibit, normally with an animation showing right there, which has been, for obvious reasons, we're, we're doing something else with that space right now. Um, John Riedel, uh, one of the scientists with the Skagit Climate Science uh, Consortium, is co-facilitating with me. So the two of us are going to guide us all through um, the panel. Um, 
And I wanted to just take a minute to sort of set up the conversation that we're having today. Yes. Sorry, is that better? Yes. Okay, sorry. I'll, I'll, flag me again if I, if I fall away. Um, so, as you all know, this exhibit is about, it's on the theme of climate change. Um, and climate change, as we all know also, is a global problem. It's happening all around the world. Um, and can seem like an abstraction to people. It seems like it has seemed like something that's far away. Maybe it's not immediately affecting us. But, of course, the impacts of climate change are local. They're very real, and they're local, and they're felt locally, and we're starting to see more and more of that ourselves now. Um, the impacts of climate change happen in places that people live in and they care about. Um, not all of the impacts are visible all the time. And some of them are by nature invisible because they're too small or too large to see. Um, but this exhibit takes that sort of as the premise. We're talking about a climate change in a specific place, which is the watershed, the biome, the region that we all live in. People talk about the Pacific Northwest or about Cascadia. This exhibit is taken even with a specific focus within that, which is the watershed of the Skagit River and that basin. Um, and taking our area as a watershed, of course, we have scientists living and working here and also artists who take this as our home. Um, and you could say that scientists and artists work very differently. They have a different modes of work and different products of work. Um, but I think you can also say that scientists and artists are both close observers in their specific ways, something that scientists and artists both do. Um, John is going to talk to you for a minute, um, in, in a moment, about what the scientists are observing in this watershed by way of impacts of climate change. Um, Speaking as one of the artists, um, some of us are born here, probably some of us have chosen to live in this area um, because, like, like the rest of us who live here, there are things about this environment and about this biome or this region that speak to us. Um, we are all in relationship to the forests, the ice that we see, the salt water, the estuaries, the rivers. These are all things that mean something to us, and artists may choose to take these things as an object of investigation or observation and something that they want to make a response to. So there have been artists doing this in this area for a long time. This exhibit has taken the idea of putting the artists with their observation and the scientists with their observation together and seeing as partners what do we make of what is happening in this area with respect to climate change. Um, so with that, um, as a short introduction, John is going to talk to you for a couple of minutes about what scientists uh, have been discovering in the watershed, the phenomena that they're learning about. And then I'll take it back for a second just to talk about um, logistics for a second, and then we'll proceed. All right, well, thank you, Rachel, and thank you all for coming. Uh, I also want to, on behalf of the Skagit Climate Science Consortium, thank uh, Joanna, Mona staff for uh, hosting this for the Board of Trustees for supporting it. Uh, thanks especially to the public for making it a success, uh, and also to the scientists and artists who worked really hard to make this happen. Um, I am a founding member and the current president of the Skagit Climate Science Consortium. We refer to ourselves often as SC Squared, kind of a geeky acronym, but uh, short and sweet. Um, we're engaged as these 13 scientists in climate change research in Skagit Watershed. And the watershed is an appropriate place for us to understand and adapt to climate change because it's a functional unit of the landscape. And very often what we're finding is that 
some of the uh, impacts of climate change are amplified at the, at the watershed scale. They reinforce each other. And so um, Skagit is a really important watershed in this part of the world because it's the largest that drains into Puget Sound, uh, hosts all five native species of salmon, and has this incredible diversity. But it's also quite vulnerable to climate change, including pathways that are uh, such as sea level rise, ocean acidification, flooding, loss of glacial and snow resources, um, fire and ecosystem effects. And so a lot of work to do, a lot of understanding for us to build, um, and a lot of communication for us to do to get this information out to the public. So as a group of scientists, our goals um, are to collaborate and integrate our research to make it more powerful, more meaningful, uh, more relevant to, to managers and people who are trying to adapt to climate change. Our second goal is to produce relevant scientific publications, studies, and analyses that are important to the people and the communities in the Skagit watershed. And then third goal is, uh, is to, uh, to serve as a conduit to get this information out of the scientific literature to decision makers, to the public. And the surge exhibit has been one of our uh, larger and I think more successful efforts to try to communicate some of this to the public uh, and decision makers in sort of a different way. So uh, with that, again, let me thank you uh, for coming today and making Surge a success. And so now we're going to turn to back to Rachel and set the stage for the uh, panelists to make short presentations. Um, OK, so in a minute here, we're going to be hearing from our panelists. Um, we have uh, four artists and two scientists uh, here today on the panel. We have Anna McKee, Margot Myers, Roger Fuller, scientist Roger Fuller, Mary Koss, David Peterson, and Lynn McDuncan. And each of them will be making a brief presentation of about three to five minutes. We'll be hearing from each of them about their work. Um, and then John and I are gonna pose a couple of questions to the panel about the collaborative process from the artist's point of view and from the scientist's point of view. Um, and we also hope to talk a little bit about what has been successful about Surge and actually to get some input from you as well, make sure that you have time to ask questions and also to give us a little bit of feedback on what you have taken from this exhibit and what you have to share with us about that. So we hope we'll be able to make a little bit of a conversation out of it. Um, we do end at five o'clock and I understand that we actually need to make that a hard ending so we will do that. And then as uh, Joanna mentioned, there's the, we all get to go to the bar after that. <laughs> Um, so with that, um, Anna, I think if you'd like to start. Well, thanks for coming today. Um, my work is in part about locating myself in the world, in my surroundings, and describing that visually. It's a practice of observation. Though I begin with an undefined observation, inevitably my mind begins to question, where am I? What is this? Why does it look like this? And how did it get here? Along with an interest in and concern for our planet, my questions have led me to read about and learn about trees, soil, landforms, and glaciers. Over the years, this evolved into uh, an in-depth collaboration with several scientists that has become a major influence on my work. I've traveled with science teams on multiple remote field trips to the Arctic and Antarctica, spent hours in discussion and in research labs, invited scientists into my studio and used archived samples in my work. 
One thing I like about these collaborations is the unpredictable and surprising effects that the research and observations has on my visual work. Sometimes this is an overlay on the work, and other times it's a more fully integrated um, into the finished work. Um, this drawing, uh, in many ways, is a direct observation of the Easton Glacier on Mount Baker. I work with my field sketches and photographs to create portraits of places. Usually these are places that have evidence of longer geologic change. They are scenes that elicit in me a sense of wonder and um, reverence. But this, also, this drawing is also influenced by studies in glacial dynamics, even though I didn't really consciously set out to create a drawing about glacial dynamics. Evidence Wall, which is the piece downstairs that I created for Surge, is a result of a different type of collaboration. It began with discussions about the unique relationship between ice sheet uh, decline in West Antarctica and rising sea levels in the Pacific Northwest. It grew out of research rather than my own visual observations. I used the map form to create a narrative sequence that asked the viewer to first sort out, to sort out first what the images are and then determine what their relationship is, are to each other and what story that suggests. This work was designed to communicate a specific area of research and is more fully in the realm of education. However, it's also designed to ask questions and allow the viewer to the freedom to discover personal meanings and connections. So the full piece, this is one of the drawings, the full pieces downstairs. Um, and then I'm just going to say a, a, two, a couple of words about um, my collaborators who were unfortunately not able to be here. Heidi Root is a lead scientist for science communication at the University of Washington Climate Impact Group. She works to strengthen the connection between climate science and decision making across a range of sectors and government agencies. She designs trainings and communication resources to increase climate resilience across the United States and abroad. And one project that had a direct influence on our collaboration is the Washington Coastal Resilience Project, a three-year effort to increase the capacity of Washington's coastal communities to prepare for coastal hazards, including sea level rise. She also conducts research on how to use communications and the process of knowledge co-production to advance the application of climate science in decision making. She's trained hundreds of scientists and decision makers, including Nobel laureates and Congress people, on the fundamentals of climate change. She's worked with NASA, the National Science Foundation, and several other international organizations to lead workshops and develop projects to improve communications of climate information. In addition to her role at the University of Washington, she's an adjunct a research fellow at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. She holds a PhD in geology with an emphasis on climate change and hydrology. And then Peter Neff, who also um, advised on this piece, is a glaciologist and earth science scientist from the Pacific Northwest. He completed his PhD in geology at the Antarctic Research Center, Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand. Um, his specialty is the use of glacial ice as a medium for understanding climate dynamics and atmospheric chemistry, employing geochemical techniques to reveal this information. Um, he is a, currently a postdoctoral research associate and member of the ISO lab at the University of Washington and also a research associate at the University of Rochester. 
So they both helped work. I, and I actually first met them um, in a remote field camp in West Antarctica. So that's how I got to know them. Anyway, thank you. And Margo will speak next, and as I think you all figured out, the imagery is over here. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So um, I apologize. I didn't uh, send in more than one slide. I just sent this one. <clears throat> I misunderstood um, that we, sh we should send more than one image of our work. But this is my piece that's downstairs. Um, and I'll just speak brief briefly about other work in my background, and then a little I'll uh, go into uh, the work that, that went on to create, that was behind the scenes for this installation. Um, I was born in a remote uh, village in Bristol Bay, Alaska, and um, was born to a family of people who fish for a living in the summertime. And so being involved in uh, seasonal work that happens annually <clears throat> and that exposes you um, directly to outdoor elements for my whole lifetime uh, has, has really influenced my work and it makes me particularly interested in the issue of climate change. Um, you definitely see shifts in, in the fishing season, you see shifts in weather and you see shifts in ecology uh, where I live in Alaska, but um, it's sometimes you know, hard to know as just a person who's there observing and working, it's hard to really know what the empirical evidence of, of actual change and patterns is. So this opportunity to work with Roger Fuller was really exciting and a real honor, um, just because you have access to uh, incredible equipment, people with incredible knowledge, and backgrounds that are just so different from your own. So this project um, was born after I spent uh, a couple of times out in the field with Roger, and I can't remember the name of the, the estuary where we were, but just kind of tromping around in the mud, looking at bulrushes and birds and learning more about all of the different complex ways that these creatures and organisms work together. And, you know, we're stomping around on the mud in hip boots, which is a place that's very, very comfortable for me since that's what we do in fish camp. Um, <laughs> spent a lot of time in the mud. And Roger mentioned, you know, one of the things that's degrading our, our wetlands is the fact that, um, you know, a lot of birds, there's a high population of swans right now in this area because of warming temperatures in the Arctic, um, which is, you know, interesting to me since I see these birds in the summertime. I see baby sandhill cranes and swans and ducks and all sorts of waterfowl that I know end up migrating elsewhere. Um, but finding out that just a slight temperature change in the Arctic where these birds are reared has created a huge overpopulation here, and those birds all need something to eat. They like to eat the rhizomes of the rushes, which makes it so that the soil can't be held together, and the soil becomes sandier and less muddy in our estuaries. And then, you know, Roger mentioned, oh, microscopic, microscopic level, there are these little things called diatoms that kind of act as glue to hold the, the soil together. And so that's what gave me the idea of, you know, could we look at soil samples and, and see, what, see what this looks like, see what these organisms look like. And I think one of the things that was really exciting to me about working with a scientist is, um, I think science and arts have, have this in common, which is great, is this just real um, love for discovery and, and uh, real uh, drive to learn new things. And so uh, 
when I learned also that there's a huge amount of um, potential research on the science ends of things in terms of taxonomy for diatoms, I think that, that made the project just more exciting. So it was really, like I said, it was a really big honor to be able to look at, look at soil samples uh, with an electron microscope um, and just see how complex and what kind of otherworldly uh, appearance exists you know, so far away from what we can actually see and experience in real time. Um, uh, so that's, that's the background here. I have done other, um, other installations that had, had things, has something to do with radial area and other microscopic organisms. So this, this work tied in well with, with um, other projects that I've done. And um, I feel like I kind of work in a broad spectrum of, of, um, of work. I work on many different media and on different scales. So if you're interested in seeing more of the projects I've done, including uh, stairway installations or outdoor pieces, I'd love to chat with you afterwards and uh, give you some more information about my work. Thank you. Now Roger. Roger Fuller. Hi, I'm Roger Fuller. I am a scientist and I work with the Skagit Climate Science Consortium as well. I am, uh, my real workplace is at uh, Padilla Bay National Estuarian Research Reserve just down the road here a little ways and I live here locally. And I work in, uh, um, at Padilla Bay, I'm, I'm, I, I lead their stewardship and restoration program and it covers everything from eelgrass and intertidal habitats up to forests and farm on, uh, on, on land. So it's a really wide spectrum of stuff and all of those are impacted in different ways by climate change. So it's a, one of the key things that we're looking at is, is how does climate change affect all of these different plants and animals that, that we're interested in and the habitats and the physical processes that provide the habitat that they, they really need. Uh, the area that I spend the most of my work, have spent the most work um, in the past has been in tidal wetlands. And they are uh, real interesting to me because they're, they're sort of, a, I, I think of them as a, a seam type of ecosystem. They occur at the seam of where the land and the river and the ocean all meet. And so they, they, they have these physical processes coming from all angles, from these three different large realms, and they all take, take place in this, this seam called the estuary. So it's a fascinating place for me. And the, um, what, what I'm really interested in, in particular with, with uh, climate change, is thinking about how the impacts of climate change affect the food web in little ways that sort of reverberate through the entire food web and, and, and uh, end up with kind of surprising uh, things happening that you don't really expect. And I think that's really where a lot of the climate change impacts are going to come from that, that catch us by surprise or that really have large impacts is those, those indirect impacts from climate change. And one of those is that happens in, in tidal wetlands is that you can look at a different types of marsh. And in both the Skagit and the Stillaguamish wetland estuary, where I've done a lot of work just south of the Skagit, there's a lot of different uh, wetlands there. And in some areas, some of those wetlands are disappearing, so they're eroding. And that big picture at the bottom there gives you an idea. You can see there's some pedestals there in the middle of uh, what we used to call high marsh that is um, you know, a couple feet higher in elevation than the ground below it. That's the, those pedestals are left 
uh, as a result of a lot of erosion that has happened over, over many years. So those, the, the plants that grow on top of those pedestals are totally different than the plants that grow in the lower areas. A complete change in habitat type, complete change in organisms between those two marsh types. And now we just have these little remnants of high marsh left. And you can see in that lower large photo, that distance between high marsh and low marsh is just about two feet. You travel two feet and you're in a totally different habitat. In a resilient marsh, that strip across the top from the Stillaguamish estuary, that same distance takes about over 4,000 feet to travel from high marsh to low marsh. That's a resilient marsh, a very large, it's a very robust, very productive, produces a huge amount of biomass, that plant matter. And as you remember from high school biology, plant matter is the fuel for the entire food web. So if you're interested in Chinook salmon, if you're interested in eagles, if you're interested in shorebirds or ducks, if you're interested in Dungeness crab on your uh, salad tonight, if you're interested in orcas, this is where it starts with the plants that produce the food that feed the critters. So the tidal marsh is really critical because it's, it's what's producing food to feed the, that, that food web. Uh, so what's the difference? Top, resilient, bottom, not resilient marsh. So the, the direct impact on the, that marsh that's eroding is the waves. It's eroding the soil away. So that's the direct impact. But most marsh is resilient to waves. It exists in a wavy environment. It's not a problem. But when you have a whole bunch of interacting factors that can affect its resilience, that's when it starts to get really interesting. So one of the big things um, is snow geese. We have a ton of snow geese around here, and the population has really exploded for a number of reasons over the past few decades. And one of the reasons, not there's a lot of different reasons, one of them, um, or a couple of them are related to climate change. One of them is that the, a, a lot, uh, far more of the young survive because of uh, more modest temperatures in their breeding grounds in the Arctic. So the population has really increased a lot. They spend their daytime on farmland. At night, they go to the tidal marsh and dig up the roots. So they disturb the soil. That makes it, uh, and they do it during winter, which is storm season. So that makes it um, amenable for the soil to be carried away. Um, other things that happen is uh, soil salinity. So we've observed in uh, the Stillaguamish, where I've been doing a lot of, of research, changes in soil salinity in the summer, which is the growing season for the plants. Rivers are lower, that means there's less fresh water coming in during the summer growing season. That raises the salinity in the soil because you still have the tide pushing up. In fact, you have sea level rise pushing up even higher. So soil salinity is, is really affecting things. Um, and then uh, sea level rise is obviously impacting it. You raise the water level a little bit, that really increases the energy of those waves that do the erosion. And then there's things like the, the microscopic um, uh, diatoms on the soil that Margot talked about that help to stick the soil particles together and keep them from eroding. And those are affected. You get snow geese in there digging up the soil. That also disrupts the diatom layer. And you have other factors that affect the, that, that microscopic biofilm. And so I'm really interested in, in how all of those little bits and pieces, uh, um, uh, reduction in predation on snow geese in the Arctic, all end up um, you know, affecting things down here. Um, so it's a really interesting process, and all of those have links to climate change in, in one way or, or another. Um, so thank you. OK, Mary Koss, your turn. It's appropriate that I'm following up Roger, because we work together on this. Um, I'm 
um, um, a sculptor and an installation artist, and I consider myself a cultural worker. All of my work is around um, things that I find that are important in our lives. And so I look at the cultural um, developments that are happening around me. I look a little bit at history, and I look at politics, and somewhere is a sweet spot that interests me. Um, so I, I like to work, I like to create a window for people to access my work. And I do that by using universal imagery that we're all familiar with in some way. Um, I often abstract it or push it in one direction or another so that it isn't, um, it, it, it becomes a story in itself. So I might take a seashell and, and make it monumental so that it's 10 feet tall and you walk inside of it. And that's what I do to create a story, to have people look around, think about the existential questions that are important to all of us, and to reconsider um, where we're going. So that's how I work. And I was really excited about this because I love collaboration. I've worked with poets and um, landscape architects and musicians. and. The idea of working with a scientist was really intriguing to me. And um, I worked initially with Roger in a previous collaboration a couple years ago. We didn't have much time um, during that period to prepare our work, and it was only up for about a week and a half. And so the work wasn't as extensive as it is this time, but I look at that work as studies for what I did this time. Um, my introduction to global warming um, was really through Roger's eyes, and he took me out in the estuary and we walked. And um, I was really intrigued and compelled by this story about salt. And I saw salt as a beautiful metaphor that I could work with. So I kind of dove into the world of salt and <laughs> used it in all the work downstairs. I'm, my work's in the, um, there's a room kind of off by itself. And um, one thing that I found interesting is that the estuary is kind of ground zero for where the freshwater resources and the salt water are meeting. And um, the sign that those are meeting, um, the coal, the canary in the coal mine is, are the barnacles that appear. And so I thought it would be interesting to create kind of a dystopian landscape of bulrush that was being attacked by barnacles, which is basically what my um, ghost meadow down there is. And I took um, fine wire and I made 300 pieces of uh, three-sided sedge grass and dipped them in paper pulp, and that's what's down there. And then um, I really wanted to in, include Roger more in what I was doing. So I asked him to write a, a journal entry as if he was writing a story to a grandchild or he was just um, back from the marshes and thinking about things and what would he say. And so he wrote this really beautiful poetic piece that I then wrote in bailing wire and um, created kind of a fishing net of sorts out of it. And that's dipped in salt, and that's down there too. Um, and the, the other piece I have down there is, I was thinking about this idea of 
what kind of taking things to extreme, what would happen um, eventually if we really did lose all of our freshwater resources and everything became salt water. And so I created kind of a, an idea of, um, of what remains, what would we see way in the future. And so I created kind of a ruins out of salt and cast several things in salt. Um, yeah, and my time looks like it's up, so. <laughs> Thank you. Dave Peterson apparently uh, needed to go, so he is not going to be with us. Um, so we're going to go on with uh, Lynn McDuncan. I already know a lot of you from my time earlier this century in, living in La Conner. I had a glass studio and a, a gallery in the building next door to the library. So I feel like a resident here. Um, now I just live in Conway. It's not that far away. <laughs> uh, I also have work around town in the lovely project that the town puts on for outdoor sculpture. I have work down on the riverfront and also up at the quilt museum, textile museum. And that work I have done with a new, I have a metal partner. So I've been able to transition my work from smaller gallery work into large public art. We just completed last spring the piece in Mount Vernon, the tall totem. That, that's one of our pieces. So. I get to do much larger glasswork now because I have a metal person who does the framework for me. So that's been a fun uh, transition. The Another transition that I've been able to experience in my life is one, I had parallel careers as an artist, a glass artist, and also as a science educator with the Corvallis School District in, in Oregon. And at that in that position, I mostly taught middle school science, and I became the science curriculum coordinator for the district by my work with the EPA on climate change. And this is back in the 90s. And we just keep thinking about if we had implemented many of the things that were in our curriculum for middle school kids then, how much farther along we would be in our um, avoidance and mitigation of climate change effects. But here we are. And so that has become a focus of a lot of my work. A lot of my work has been aimed at issues related to climate change. And glass is an interesting medium for that. So this, I have the honor of being three times in the surges. I was in the first one with John on glaciers and last year, last time with Roger on wetlands and this time with Dave, who I guess I made him sick. I don't know. <laughs> He's had enough of me. No, no, it's been a wonderful experience. I, I, I appreciate Mona for putting it on, for expanding uh, the time from a weekend to an entire quarter is indicative of the uh, seriousness with which they approach this topic, and that's, it benefits our entire community that way. I also had a double collaboration. Not only did I get to work with Dave, but I also got to work with a painter co uh, colleague of mine, and a lot of times she would paint a painting and then I would react to it as in this one here, uh, in, in the glass. And because we, <laughs> we spread ourselves really thin, we didn't just focus, uh, like you know, so many people here did so wisely on one aspect of the project, um, we got to experiment with different techniques in glass. So that was really fun for me, is to be able to work small, but still have each one um, 
have a, a, a theme, but also a technical challenge. So for me, that was very exciting. And we started our um, collaboration by uh, Dave and Ann came to my studio, and Dave's wife, Linda, is a painter, so he was already familiar with artistic thinking, and he employed that in his own presentation to us when we all got to meet, the scientists and artists got to meet together a couple years ago, I guess. And Dave's presentation had uh, work at the cellular level, and I was really interested in, in how things look as cells. And having some of my work be round is also suggestive, suggestive of cellular views of the issue. And our, our, we took trees as our topic, forestry. Dave is a forestry expert. And as we moved through the summer and through our projects, the wildfires were starting to um, appear. Last summer when we had a lot of smoke coming down from BC and of course this year with all of the horrible fires in California. And so Dave's expertise in fire suppression and fuel management became really crucial to our, our topic. So we were able to utilize his expertise on that, and this, this piece is a result of that. My piece is called The Fire This Time. The other, other aspects of it um, involved Dave reading my voluminous text. We were asked to each provide a 500-word text for our pieces, but you know most people only did one, one piece, one uh, installation. And so when Ann and I had, I don't know, seven, that was a lot of words. And so it was great to be able to work with Dave. He uh, was very responsive. We did a lot of emailing back and forth, telephone calls, and he was able to direct my, my thinking, and especially my vocabulary. So that was, that was very helpful. Um, let's see what else. The interesting part to me about working with these three different scientists was that they all came down to basically a similar theme. We looked at stressors for the environment, and which is stressful. I mean, it's it's um, when when this the root of this project came from the art the, the scientists' desire to express to have help expressing their concerns and that's where the artists come in it has a, an emotional te uh, catch to it and I've come many weekends and talked to people about the exhibit and I've been really impressed by what they take away and by their questions and by their by their concerns and when I asked Dave what he wanted if there was just one thing that we could convey out of this project what would it be for him and he said that the forest did not look like this 100 in locally did not look like this 100 years ago or 100 million years ago and they're not going to look like this 100 years from now let alone 100 million years from now and that that statement encapsulates both the time frame that that's so un you know un imaginable to humans 100 million years but that the earth, but that the earth will sustain and that, that it's up to us to to try and help um, what we can what we can in terms of resilience and I've heard almost every speaker here today talk about resilience which is a very positive um, way of ending our talk and and our uh, and our project is, is thinking about the ways in which the earth and humans, it's such, so important in human psychology, the ways in which we are all resilient. And that, that's what I really appreciate.
thank you all. Um, that, that was terrific. Now we're going to start a bit of a conversation. To begin with, among the panelists with a couple of prompts that we have uh, for you all. And then, as I said, as we go along, we hope to invite you all to jump in as well with questions or, or, or comments. Um, and because Dave had to leave, John, who is one of the participating scientists in the exhibit, is going to fill in for him so that we have John and Roger to answer questions that are directed to our scientists. So we made a little adaptation here. Um, so I'll start with a question to the artists and any of you who, who would like to respond, feel free. So um, this question was about, sort of a general question about collaborating with a scientist. And of course, you've all spoken about that already. So maybe to sharpen that question just a little bit, um, feel free, I know you didn't have, none of you had very much time to speak, but anything you'd like to add about working with scientists on this project? Um, and has working on this project, or how has the working on the project, changed your view of climate change, perhaps? Or changed your view of the topic? So that's maybe just a little bit of a refinement on the, how, is it, how has it been collaborating with the scientists, and how did that affect your work on the project? Anyone who'd like to respond? That's for the artists to begin with. Yeah. I think the, the thing that struck me most about um, working with Roger was uh, <clears throat> kind of and, and hearing other scientists present their work um, at the initial meeting that we had here at Mona, I think last year, before the surge exit started, was kind of a lack of um, politicization of the topic. Um, and I think that's really, uh, it's very important <clears throat> in terms of getting people to approach it and to reach out to people um, from all different backgrounds so that we can all understand together uh, these issues that don't have a lot to do with politics but some, for some reason have um, turned into kind of hot topics, hot button topics. Um, so I think that was one of the things that I noticed right away that, that didn't really surprise me, it just stood out just because when I speak about climate change with people in my family who have different, you know, really different political uh, opinions from me or I speak about people on the other side who have you know, political opinions that are closer to mine, um, topics like fresh water, which seems like a very universally important um, thing that we have, resource, suddenly becomes, for some reason, politicized. So I think that was very valuable to, to have that experience. I think the thing that, um, that hit me the strongest was the complexity of everything. We're so used to, we live in a world of sound bites and um, we don't really understand how the tendrils of global warming are affecting so many places and so many things and so many parts of our lives. And I, I fear that uh, in general, people won't understand that until they get, until it touches them personally. <coughs> But just walking in the estuaries and Roger talking about um, the domino effect of how so many different flora and fauna are being um, affected by one piece of the global warming puzzle was kind of overwhelming. Our topic of trees and forests was pretty familiar. I spend a lot of time backpacking and camping and trees and so does my partner hikes and we have a general appreciation for the beauty of trees, but working with Dave and on, on this project has made us look at trees differently. And actually appreciate what they are in terms of the world's lungs, so to speak, that, that, that there are a number one uh, 
defense against climate change and how simple that is, and yet then you look at issues like what's going on in the rainforest right now with the new Brazilian president. And he, so it helps it helps tie all those those concerns together, both in a wonderful sense. I have a piece that I really like. It's called "Inhaling Our Beloved Forest," and it refers to a Japanese uh, concept of taking um, forest baths. They sit and bathe in even the spirit of the, of the forest. And so to go from that to these these other issues that are so pressing, and to have it all represented by a beautiful tree that probably all of us have in our yards or in the neighborhoods around us. So uh, the symbolism of it was very powerful, as, as particularly as an artist. Um, well, I, you know, I've been working with scientists for a long time, and, and as I've learned more about climate change, I just try not to <laughs> but but and, and but it's made me a lot more passionate about my work, um, I would say. Um, but in this piece particularly, I think I, I would really, you know, I thought I knew about a lot of the various um, issues around um, tides and things. But the the the, the science that, I, that my piece is about is a thing called fingerprinting, where. Um, changes in an area very far away can affect the levels of tides in a, a completely different part of the world. And I didn't actually know about that until we started talking about it. With, I was talking with Heidi and Peter about it. And just the, it, it just brought home, again, that the notion of just how interconnected everything is and, um, and how it reverberates globally. And I think that was just, that would, this piece, this project in particular really, really, uh, I guess, just reminded me of that more than anything. Oh, that's great. Um, wonderful. Thank you. Now I have a similar question to our two scientists, Roger and John. Um, what were your expectations for this collaboration? And how does art or working with an artist differ from other forms of scientific outreach or communication that you may have been involved in? Um, and then if you want to take a little follow-on to that, what did you learn about working with the artists that might inform your work in the future? Uh, I guess in, in terms of expectations, I, I started out with pretty simple expectations. Okay, I'm a scientist, I know, you know some things about climate change impacts here locally. So I'm expecting that we're going to have uh, you know a little bit of a conversation about climate change impacts, and I'll talk a little bit about what I know or don't know, and the artists will ask some questions, and I'll try to respond, and uh, that's about it, right? Um, but I found it to be actually much more than that, and um, in a few different ways, I think. Um, this time we were able to, we had enough time for preparing that, that we, we spent some time in the field, so the artists uh, that I work with, we went out into the, the marshes, as, as Margo was talking about, and tromped around in, in uh, um, hip waders and knee boots and got muddy and got to really see things and touch things and experience things. Um, but I think for, uh, the, the, the work didn't stop there. So for instance, Margo was really interested in the microscopic stuff and the diatoms. Well, that's really, it's easy to talk about, it's hard to show. And I'm not a, uh, I don't work with scanning electron microscopes usually, that's, that's a, um, uh, you know, it's a really super expensive tool for one thing, and it's not the kind of thing I, I usually work on. I'm an ecologist, so I work at, at large scales, not microscopic scales. Um, but her question, 
simulate a lot of curiosity in me to find out a lot more about diatoms and also a great excuse to get to play with a really big, really expensive tool that normally I don't get allowed to play with. Um, and so that was hugely rewarding for me just on a really personal level as well as professional, just being able to uh, play with something that I don't normally get to play with that is a, a really interesting and cool tool that lets you zoom in and see things that are so, so tiny that are, you know, uh, magnifying things by several thousand times. And so you're really looking at, at, at incredibly tiny things and seeing rich, incredible detail on that. And so it really exposes you to this idea that that mud flat that you see when you walk out uh, at low tide that looks barren of life is full of life. It's just covered with a microscopic meadow of plants and animals and fungi that you just don't see. And that, that has a really big impact. And I'm, I'm, as a scientist, I'm well aware of those impacts and the links, but it was really fascinating for me to be able to dive into that a lot more because of the artist's interest in that. And I think that um, um, similarly with, with uh, when I was working with Mary, she uh, had a lot of questions and a lot of, um, uh, um, as she mentioned, she, she pushed me to uh, do some writing of my own, to do some uh, creative writing, which was really um, a new experience. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that, uh, that I take is uh, a different way um, <clears throat> from science, uh, the science perspective that I'm used to of, of thinking about um, the things that I love. <laughs> and responding to them, so I appreciate that. So my expectations were really high for this because, well, for several reasons. One is we've done it twice before, and I got to work with really high-quality people and artists. And in this exhibit, our third surge, I got to work with Alice. Maybe you could stand up. Uh, and Mary Ashton. Uh, on and I worked with them on a totally different scale than Roger and the diatom. So I'm a glacial geologist. And so we worked on glacial change in those exhibits. And it's kind of a depressing sort of thing that's happening with our glaciers. And we've lost uh, more than half the glaciers in the North Cascades in the, in the last 100 years. And the pace of loss seems to be accelerating. We're finding that the higher you go in the landscape, there are these positive feedback mechanisms that accelerate the climate warming, so two to three times the warming in the snow and ice landscapes. And if you look at that on a local scale, that's our glaciers, our high mountains, but it's also true on a global scale at, at the uh, higher uh, latitudes at the poles. Um, so the collaboration was a lot of fun. It was very exciting. Um, and for me, it was the experience was really powerful because I think anytime we step out of our own muck boots or snow boots, whatever the case may be, and look at our work from a different angle through somebody else's eyes, we learn a little bit about um, not just our work, but ourselves. And so this kind of collaboration, as Roger said, um, I think it makes uh, us better scientists. I hope that the artists have also gained some insight about their work through this process. So I'm um, already looking forward to search for wherever Joanne is. <laughs> well, thank you all so much. That's great. 
I, I imagine that you all have been accumulating some questions. I think we've got time for maybe a question at this point from the audience on the, the topic that we've already been talking about. If you have a question for the panelists about their collaborative process, um, and maybe rather than, because we've got a little bit more we want to get to, rather than everyone on the panel responding, maybe if we can just get a couple of responses from the panel. If someone has a question about collaboration that they'd like to ask. I have a question for the scientists. Uh, I'm from Canada, from the Lower Mainland, and of course we share our water and our air and everything else. Um, do you collaborate at all with anybody in Canada, and in what way do you do that? She's from Canada, across the border, and as uh, she mentioned, uh, they share the same water and air and everything that we have down here. And so she's wondering if we collaborate with folks on the other side of the border. And um, I, I will say that we collaborate very little, unfortunately, compared to what we should. And there's, there's a lot of work going on to try to build those bridges a lot more so that we are collaborating and, and talking. We do have a wonderful conference every other year called the Salish Sea Ecosystem Conference that is um, cross-border. And that's a, a huge time for cross-conversations across the border. And I've had um, a number of really good discussions and conversations and exchange of ideas and knowledge and skills um, that resulted from that. Um, but uh, on a regular basis, I don't, I don't do a lot of that. And we, we need to do much more of that. So in my case, the answer is yes, and in a very big way. Um, my doctorate work was done at Simon Fraser University uh, in Vancouver, and I worked on the glacial history of the Skagit River watershed, which is transnational. So um, at that level, I worked quite a bit with uh, John Clegg and Brent Ward and some people at Simon Fraser University. But even more, the more recent research on what's happening with our glaciers today um, I work with people from other countries all the time. And all of our information that we collect on the status of glaciers goes to a place called the World Glacier Monitoring Service, which is an incredible forum for us to share our work and also to create a picture that isn't just local or regional, but global in extent. And so, you know, I really enjoy all of those types of collaborations, but, um, as Roger said, it's important for us being on the border with Canada and with these rivers that, that come from Canada, mostly into the U.S., not exclusively. We have a few that go the other way here. Um, but yeah, the collaboration is pretty extensive, in, at least in glaciology. Thank you. Great. Um, we'll have more time for you all to have some questions, but I wanted to put out um, another to our panel here, and then we'll definitely invite much more from you all. Um, this is for all of you, artists and scientists. Um, have you, in working together with your colleagues, seen any similarities about the creative process in art and science? And wondering what you feel the role of curiosity and imagination is in your, in your work. And also maybe what you've noticed about your partner. And that's for anyone who would like to respond. Um, I think that there is a lot of similarities in the way that we work in that, um, and 
I don't think all artists necessarily work in the same way, but I think that the artists that sought out this opportunity are artists who do work pretty similarly to the way my process, which is um, a research-based process, and um, and we we have questions that we research and we collect information and we. Um, we kind of go through what is a little bit like uh, a scientific process. And, um, and then I think that how we tied in with that with each other was asking lots of questions and then sharing information and then taking that information, information and having it inform what we were working on. Um, so I, I think that that's pretty similar to a science, scientific process and I feel like that's kind of how we as artists were working. I don't know if other artists have a different take on that, but. <laughs> yeah, I agree a lot, and um, I think that, um, I, I like to think of it as being that we we both have these toolkits. Like we're, we're um, I, I've said this a bunch, I think that, um, especially the earth scientists, and I think that's, I've, I've really only worked with glacial or geologists, and, but um, so it may be different in other fields, like theoretical, but not <laughs> But um, we're all looking out and, and saying, what are we looking at? What is this? There's this inherent curiosity that, that um, and then using the tools that we have to describe that. And so with science, there's a very um, kind of, codified way that that happens and with artists it it's varied but there is you know artists all also have their own disciplines and their own toolkits to it you know to essentially describe in some way or communicate to to somebody besides myself what it is that I'm seeing my response to it I think that one thing I think is, is similar, or that I really responded to, was this idea of taxonomy and organization. And um, I I love organization and order, like seeing it all. I'm not always super pro uh, proficient at it in my own life and my own practice, but I think that that desire to understand a system um, and the process is really something that I connected with. And one of the reasons that I was interested, I've uh, been interested in plankton for a long time, is because of the work of 17th century lithographer Ernest Heckel, who was uh, an, an observationist and a printmaker, um, and I, I think that you know the love, of, the love of observation, the love of order, and understanding what's going on is something that's similar between artists and scientists. For me, I think that uh, curiosity and imagination is really critical to my to the way that I work as a as a scientist because it it, it really drives what I study and why I study, and it drives a. The, the questions we ask. So um, just one example, in um, 2015 I was doing some monitoring of, in an estuary and I just noticed that a lot of the plants were dead and dying. And it wasn't part of my research at all, but it was really um, interesting. And it, it, I, it just got me thinking a lot about uh, what's happening in the, the the food web that would drive that, and so you know, a little bit of curiosity, and you notice little holes in the stems. You figure out there's an insect that's doing something, and is it really the insect that's killing all of these plants? And so you do some some investigation that results from that that curiosity to figure out what's what might be happening or what the patterns are, and then the imagination really starts coming in because trying to figure out why 
why is this insect having this impact this year? Um, what is the insect? It's a native insect. We never saw it before, but we never looked for it. So it was there all the time. We just never looked for it because we didn't, we weren't thinking about moths in the estuary. It wasn't something to, to think about until suddenly they had this really big impact. And so the curiosity part was what changed? Why is suddenly 50 acres of plants dying and dead in this year? Um, and so it, 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 you start to use your imagination to think about what are the different pathways. Why would, why would something like this suddenly become an issue in a particular year? And you start thinking about the, all the different factors that affect a plant's growth and its interaction with the food web and what might tip uh, part of that food web in one direction or another. And, and so you start to think about those things. And, and then you start to test those things because of your curiosity. Um, you test those things that, that you were, were thinking about. And in that example, I think it was several different stress sources, one of them being related to climate change, because 2015 was a, a um, weather-wise, it was remarkable for us in this year, but it was analogous to what we think is going to be average conditions in 2050 or soon thereafter, in the sense that it was fairly warm, and as a result in the winter, there was very little snow in the mountains and a lot of rain, and so the water came out. There wasn't much snowpack, so summer river flows were super low. In fact, rivers were record lows from about April through the end of August. As a result, soils were really salty in the tile marsh because of the low fresh water, and that was another source of stress. It was the you know an additional stress on top of a few others in this particular place that made the plants really vulnerable. Um, and so the, the whole process is this, this process of curiosity, imagination, and then investigation. And I really think that's what, from interacting with the artists, that's really the similar process of, of, that they follow to create that kind of a work. So I also found that there were a lot of similarities. And uh, I learned that not all scientists um, have an addled one side of their brain and an active other side that, in fact, we're all sort of a mixture and I find um, through, through these search uh, efforts that really we're all searching for the truth and artists maybe look at, at and for the truth in a different way than scientists do. Um, but the fact that we're all looking for the same thing I think is, was a pretty powerful learning experience for me with, with the search uh, efforts. I create a lot of failures. I open my kiln frequently and see something that I didn't think I put in there. And so there's this magical thing. Sometimes it's a good thing and sometimes it's not. And that happened a lot in this process. And I, I, I hear my colleagues saying uh, something that I saw on a sign in the airport while Dave and I were working. And it, it, said, it had a little girl with a, with a um, paper airplane that she had created. And it said, imagine, design, build. And that's fine as far as it goes. And I add some more. And for me, it's then you test, and and then you have to often have to revise and repeat the process. And that's really important for me because I have this added factor of a kiln that is like a magic box. You know, it's black. You don't know what's going to happen in there. I have less control over my work, I think, than than say a painter. And I also see that happening in in the science world that their, their hypotheses are maybe not accu as accurate as they hoped, or something else came along that, that changed all the other variables. 
And so for me, taking it beyond just building something, which is great when it, it works, that's great, but I sometimes learn even more, and I hear that from my science colleagues as well, I think, that that the revision process and the retesting and the, and the repeating, that, that it's not, that it's a generative process, that it's not just a one, one time thing. And that, of course, is reassuring uh, in, in, in many ways. Great, thank you. Yes, I think um, we now, with, we've got about 20 minutes left, and I wanted to make sure you all have a chance to get to your questions. So I think the way we'll do this is we had a question for you all. And so what I'll do is ask you the question. You can either participate by, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this question, or you can also ask us a question, and we'll try to make our way through that for the remaining time. So the question that we would love to hear from you is, what were the most, or some of the most, important things that you've taken from this exhibit? And do you think it was successful? Why or why not? We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. and if. Or alternatively, you can ask a question, but we'd love to hear some thoughts on that. Yes, go ahead. Um, for me, as just a regular inhabitant of uh, the Northwest area, I thought that both the art and the science gave me context as to what the inputs are, what what's happening in the Skagit Valley uh, uh, environment. And with that, the, uh, the art also gave me the ability to imagine what it could be in the short and the near-term future for good or for bad. So I think that really educated me. Thank you. Great, thank you. Other, other thoughts? Takeaways from the exhibit? Yes, go ahead. Um, I'm Alice Dubiel. I was one of the artists that collaborated, um, and I collaborated with uh, this time with John Nichol. Um, one of the things that I found out that was really interesting, John, was in reading one of your essays that you had been impacted early in your career in a way that was very similar to things that happened to me. They weren't the same things but they caused a lot of changes in the directions that we pursued. And I think that that's something that um, when you work with other professional people, you don't always know because people don't always reveal this kind of thing. And, and that was uh, very, very powerful because I think it both led us to places that um, we became stronger because of I don't know if everyone could hear that. Um, the comment was just that the artist and uh, John, who worked together, um, had had some similar formative experiences early on that they wouldn't have discovered across their respective professional lives if they had not had the collaboration. Anyone else have anything they want to share about takeaways from the exhibit? Thoughts about what worked or what didn't work? Um, yes? I, th I thought it was uh, interesting to have a focus on the Skagit Valley, just because it, it impacts, I, I happen to live outside the Skagit Valley, but one of the things that I kept seeing in the show was that there are large impacts from other parts of the world. Um, and, and so it, it's, it's a microcosm. And it makes me wonder what, uh, what's the thing for next year? Um, I think maybe hold on to that, and we'll see if we can maybe talk about that for a second before we close. Um, any other? comments, feedback that uh, you'd like to give, or questions for the panel? Um, yes, go ahead. Oh, sorry, back there. Yes, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say I'm a textile artist, and over the years, um, as I've gotten older, I've been rethinking, not bringing new things into the world, and, and this exhibit really reinforced that, but I was also curious to ask you back, both the scientists and the artists, if your toolbox to use your word um, 
or your normal way of thinking about the way you approach your work or the materials change as a result of this collaboration? Um, did everyone hear that? It was a question, and help me if I, if I didn't quite get this, um, question about whether um, the artist's toolbox changed as a result of this particular collaboration. Did I get that pretty much? Okay. Yeah, I think as a, as a visual artist, materials are really near and dear to my heart. And um, so I got a chance to work with actually like Petri dish papers on this one, which was um, something that I didn't think of initially, but as we were looking at samples and I was looking at the paper, the Petri dish paper under the microscope, you know, I was able to see that it had this kind of interesting fiber. And then, you know, Roger said, oh yeah, it's made out of glass. Um, and I thought, oh yeah, so is the, some of the little bodies of the diatoms. So I think that just being exposed to other professions, you, you can see non-traditional art materials turning into art materials. As a sculptor, I struggle with how much waste I create. And um, I, I do find myself more and more trying to, there's certain things that if you want to do certain processes, you just have to use certain materials. Um, but I have found myself finding more ways to recycle things as much as possible. Um, and it's something that I continue to work on and be challenged by. It's, it's a significant challenge for a sculptor. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, sir, back there. So one of the things that struck me was that sort of intentionally or unintentionally, sort of the projects sort of range in scale from looking at diatoms to looking at these landscape scale problems. And I was wondering sort of how much of both sort of variation in media for the artists and also the scale of the kinds of questions and things that were being done. How much of that was intentional and how much of it just happened organically? Anybody want to take a crack at that? Go ahead, Roger. I, I, I can only speak for myself, but it's all organic. It, you know, it's just kind of, I, I, um, I work from ideas and then I find materials that can tell my story and um, I tend to work large and so I think relating to like a big problem is kind of came to the surface for me, I don't know. Um, but it's a pretty organic process. I would echo what Mary said and also in terms of materials, I remember when she was talking, being out at Dave's uh, home, and, and he has a beautiful tree farm that he's planted, and his wife have planted over the past 25 years, and and he brought out this chunk of bark that had uh, moss on it, which was very beautiful, the contrasting colors, and then he turned it over, and it had all these um, the uh, beetle bark trails through it, which which um, Sue's wolf has done such a fantastic job on in that section over there. And I wanted to do something about that too. I was really captivated by it. And for me, I try to limit my materials to glass. That's what, that's my challenge, is how can I do this in glass? We could have done something with wood. We talked about that, of using the actual piece of wood that Dave showed me. Um, but my challenge is to, is to stay in my same medium and try to give it uh, different looks. 
And so I have three or four different techniques. There's some where I do use exactly just the glass directly, glass powders directly on the kiln shelf. And so by having the challenge of trying to replicate the, the look and the feel of something that I saw in nature and how it connects to the issue of climate change, that became a challenge for me as well. However, I, I'm inspired by my, my colleagues as well, other artists, in thinking about the next surge, and that would be perhaps something like working with ash, because glass is made out of partly out of ash-like materials, and so I could do something with ash and, and, and other materials that, that this project has inspired in me. So that's a, a, something for the future. I would just add that uh, in my collaboration with Alice and Mary, they did all the work, right? They adapted <laughs> to my scale, uh, which is glaciers and landscapes. So kudos to them. Um, I think, uh, let's see, we had a question waiting here. An observation, actually, you'd asked for Oh, OK, yes, indeed. Yeah. It, it, briefly, yes, go yeah. ahead. Uh, I just wanted to say, when you have this kind of collaboration, what I see is a door opening. Uh, if something is aesthetically stimulating, it will attract different people to the conversation. Great, thank you. Um, back there, yes. Yeah, um, my question, uh, as a parent and educator, um, I've just really enjoyed coming here with my kids and the interaction and just seeing the, the growth since, you know, just one week to have more opportunity for families mm -hmm. to come. And, and I'm just curious, just personally, the artists or scientists or here at Mona, um, just what the response has been with working with educators or the schools or, you know, has there been um, just more interaction or people interested in learning more about what you do or sparking some more insight for our younger kids and that are going to grow up and be our, <laughs> take care of all this. They're going to kind of save it for us. Um, Roger, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, there, there has been a fair amount of that happening, not nearly as much as, as I think we had hoped would initially, but you know, one of the th first things is one of the art pieces here was constructed by children who came to Padilla Reserve in an education um, event last summer that was about climate change here locally, climate change impacts, and they responded and, and built this little art piece of the cube thing back here, so there's some, um, some, some response there. Um, one of the things that, that was we had hoped to do that wasn't able to happen was a uh, residencies in some of the local schools, an artist and scientist residency. And Margo and I were going to do that one of the middle schools, and it, it uh, unfortunately didn't, didn't work out. But I would really like to see that built into future surges is a lot more of that um, uh, sort of going out into the community and doing things not just here at the museum, but in the, in the broader community as well. Um, and there's been, there has been other community, the uh, Transition Fidalgo has done a lot of, uh, does a regular series of talks that have, are related to climate change and so there's been a number of community conversations, you know, happening in different places like that. Um, uh, so I think there's been quite a bit of that and next time I hope there will be a lot more. <laughs> yeah, I think one more question and then I think we can come back to that topic uh, for future steps to close. So yes, go ahead with your question. Scientists, and my question is: uh, Through your observations and studies currently, are there elements of hope 
this. <laughs> Could you share those? <laughs> it's discovered. Um, the question is, are there elements of hope and optimism from the scientific perspective? Um, I, I, I guess one thing that, that I come back to a lot is, is that the, the planet will continue to exist with or without us in one form or another. And, and ultimately, Mother Nature has the last word when it comes to these kinds of things. And, and so the, there will be a lot of change happening. There will be a lot of, of uh, specific species and habitats that get really impacted in a large way. Um, and there will be ones that are impacted positively, that expand their range and that um, go, go, you know, to take a bigger role in ecosystems. And so ecosystems will change, and there will be winners and losers, and there will be a lot of, um, for humans, there will be a lot of pain in that process, I think. Um, but I have that optimism that, that uh, something will come out the other end that will be different and will be wonderful. Um, and will be a, a new um, kind of set of things. So there will be change happening, uh, and it's not not all that change is going to be bad. There will be a positive change in some of those things, and um, so I try to latch onto that a little bit, I guess. So I speak to a lot of uh, grade school, high school groups, and I get that my talks are kind of depressing because I show the pictures of the glaciers the way they used to be and the way they are now. So I've thought a lot about this. And a couple of things that I share with the young folks is, one, um, this is a global problem. We're not going to just solve this in Skagit Watershed or Washington or the United States. And so this is also a global opportunity for us to start to act like we live on the same planet. And, you know, there have been a lot of other global issues, but this one is so huge and so far-reaching that the solution is going to take everybody. Um, and the other thing that I relate to the young folks is that uh, this is an opportunity for them um, to look at careers where they can make a difference. That there's a great need for scientists, for artists, um, and maybe we could do with a few less MBAs and accountants. <laughs> so those are two positive things that, uh, that, uh, that I take out of this issue. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Thank you, John. We have just a few minutes left, and I think this was a great segue to um, last thoughts from the panel, and there were questions from the audience. Everyone is interested in what's next. So further thoughts about, from, from all or any of you, about um, what should we be doing next by way of this type of collaboration, whether it's search specifically or more broadly? So we really touched on a couple of things. I think we've learned a great deal about how when we first started, that one week wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for the artist, it wasn't enough for the collaboration, it wasn't enough to reach people. So we know now that we need more time in terms of uh, building these exhibits. And Joanna mentioned it would be perhaps uh, two years from now. And so uh, that, that is huge, and um, we, we need to start thinking about giving us, ourselves more time again. Um, and the other thing that's also been touched on is that we consider taking this out of this building, whether it be through some sort of photographic exhibit that could go to schools, or whether this can travel to other museums. Um, but hopefully we're also inspiring people in other watersheds, other scientists, other artists to replicate this in other communities. 
And so I know a lot of scientists uh, that I collaborate with from the University of Washington, from Canada and the universities have come to see the exhibit and they've been inspired by it. So those are three areas where I think uh, we can continue to improve. Roger and I are actually taking <laughs> taking this on the road a little bit. We're um, I'm having a show in Tacoma and there is an artist science panel down there that we'll be speaking to and they're going to hold speed dating and one of the if you're interested in that. So that'll be <laughs> at the Tacoma Art Museum on February 7th and there's sort of a pre-event mingle at 6 and then um, Mary and Roger will speak for about half an hour and then after that we'll have um, speed dating between artists and scientists. Um, one thing I, I would really like this to be a sort of a perpetual event. I think that communication needs to happen around climate change in the community all the time. It needs to be in all of our conversations because it, it is a, a, an urgent matter and it matters if we start doing things now versus postpone at doing stuff for 10 or 20 years. So it really matters and the, the only time that things happen I think is when people talk about it a lot. And when people aren't talking about something, nothing happens. And so I think it needs to be something that we talk about individually, with our friends, with our family, and those conversations percolate to those people who start to make decisions. But the people who are in the policy department need to hear from the community that this is an issue. And so I think I would like to see a lot more conversation, a lot more ways to have that conversation in the community, whether it's different kinds of, of uh, art science events in the community and in schools or in different um, parts of the, the area or other kinds of things. I'm just really interested in that. So I'm really interested in, in your ideas on how to have that conversation in many places over time continually. And then we can have another surge in two years to uh, kind of punctuate it and <laughs> bring that. Um, one, uh, either one more comment from here or one question then we need to close. Uh, yes, go ahead. I think the answer is yes. I belong to an organization that many of you know is called uh, Union of Concerned Scientists. And they are a national group that, probably international now, that uh, do just that, that in, on many levels, not just with artists. But they have artists on their staff. They have artists that have joined with their uh, organization to promulgate the ideas that scientists have, and particularly to influence politicians, to, to people who make legislation. And so I, th I think that's a really powerful uh, way of, of doing that. And I'd and I like to add to what my colleagues have said about 
to the dialogue that needs to happen. And one of my concerns is a lot of people have a lot of awareness. They have a lot of information about climate change. They have a lot of angst about it. And, and sometimes that angst, and on top of everything else that's going on in the world, can feel crippling and, and, and paralyzing. And so for me, it isn't just enough to raise people's awareness and their anxiety and to help you know, the fund psychologists who are complaining about or commenting on all the people who have hypertension, it is to give them something to do. And if you'll notice, on each of my essays, there's a section on taking action, something that we can do. And it's important to recycle, that's, that's important, but what's really important is what I, someone else mentioned, is, is, is influencing our legislators. That's one thing. Uh, influencing um, refineries, influencing corporations. We can do that. We are, we are not a special interest group, we are the consumer. And so, um, so giving people information, there's a wonderful book out, it's, called, it's written by a woman called Mary DeMocker, and she works with Bill McKibben, she started 350.org in Eugene. And she has a book, it's 100 ideas of what you can do. And, they, and she, doesn't, she doesn't say you should garden and grow your own food, you should take that time to go talk to your, your senator. She's really, she's really, and it's not just a hundred ideas, it's like 500 ideas, because on every little, she's got every section is a, a page or two, and she does this with her teenagers, I think that's what it's called, it's called The Parent's Guide to Climate Revolution, and one of my favorite books, I read a lot of climate change books, but this, this is, this is really excellent, because there are things that you can do, if people ask you what you can do, they say, oh, I wish I could do something, she pulls out her little note, little note index cards and she'll hand them and say, call this person. You know, this is the bill that's up next week. Call them. And that's the kind of thing that, that I think we can extend to, the, uh, to our community, that, that opportunity. Thank you so much to our panel, our artists and scientists. We are at five o'clock, and we understand the museum is about to close, but we have a place to go where we can continue the conversation. I hope that, uh, thank you all to, to, to all of you so much for coming, and anyone who would like to, I, I know we'd be happy to, to have all of, this, all of you join us at the, what is it called? The Connor Sips. You guys all know this place. Um, so we're going to about to deplace ourselves over there, and I'm sure that we'd be delighted to continue the conversation. Thank you so much for coming, and um, see you later.